0: Hello and welcome to Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Celeste Horgan. Celeste is formerly of the CNCF and going to be landing at some point at a place that's a mystery right now. Hello, Celeste.
1: Um, Hello. Yeah. Recently of the CNCF a few weeks ago, depending on when the recording goes out. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. In a few weeks, landing somewhere else, depending on when the recording goes out.
0: I just saw the the announcement the other day on Twitter that that you were letting folks know that you're leaving. Uh, I usually start out by talking with people about their journey into computing. I'm wondering, like, what it is that that draw you into drew you into this world.
1: It was a bit of a multi-step process. So my parents got a computer when I was about eleven or twelve, and Pretty immediately, I became fascinated with the idea of building your own website or having your own website. And it was something that I asked my parents for in for Christmas when I think I was, again, 11 or 12. I was like, I would like my own website. So they signed me up for a tripod account. And I, my first website, my first, I had a few like smaller websites as I was like learning HTML and stuff. By, like, Mm -hmm. copying and pasting from other girls' websites. And it was very much, like, young girls. But my first real website was a a Sailor Moon website. And I just sort of kept, like, anime and game websites up pretty much through high school. Um, Got into university. All of my teachers said that I was a great writer and that I should go into UBC English. I live in Vancouver, BC. Right now. (laughs) So all my teachers in school were like, no, but you should absolutely go into English. You're going to love it. And UBC English is the best. And it is a very good English department. Uh, And I was totally miserable. Yeah, completely miserable. And I was also, for lack of a better word, a little too smart to do an English degree and not realize that there's not much at the end of that degree in terms of like really set career paths and i came from a poor background i had student loans i was like this i gotta cut this off immediately because i'm gonna get four years in i'm gonna have a ton of debt i'm gonna have no future so i did some computer science classes at ubc my first year excelled in them um but i didn't want to take the math courses so i ended up going into an interaction design degree at a different university simon fraser university and that's where i really got into tech my first job in tech was as a co-op at blackberry as a technical writer and that's where i picked up technical writing did a bit of ux design ended up going back into the technical writing i always wanted to work in open source i always thought it was just like this really cool philosophical thing i thought it was just like awesome that people were doing this just because they wanted to and i always thought it was really exciting so when the opportunity came up at cncf i was like yeah let's go (laughs) and the rest is history as they say
0: And how long were you there at CNCF?
1: Two years. So I started as a contractor in January 2020, eventually went full time. January 2022 was my last month.
0: Well, Awesome. I'm so glad that we're able to have you on the show. I have not had a technical writer as a guest yet up to this point. I've been very aware of you and your work. I've seen a few of your talks and I think you're fabulous. So uh, I'm really interested in digging into this topic and um, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording that I usually put out this call for listener questions, like maybe a few days before the recording session. And I got so many questions for you, like even more than, you know, much more than I normally do. So it's a topic <laughs> that I think other people are interested in as well. So um super excited to get into it with you. So uh, one of your talks that I've seen that I really enjoyed was the one um, from KubeCon called Writing for Developers. Take your project to the next level. And there's sort of a quote in there that I really loved. You said that the work that gets done is what the community chooses to contribute to when Mm -hmm. it comes to open source.
1: And that was So I hadn't worked in open source prior to the job at the CNCF, so I very much jumped straight into the mouth of the volcano on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I think most people tend to tiptoe their way in. And that, I think, was the biggest mentality shift for me. When you're working in documentation at a product company, the work that gets done is you document every single feature. There's just no question about it. After a certain point in time, it's less about adding features and it's more about maintaining the documentation set, making sure that things remain accurate. It's a slightly different thing, but I think that's super important to keep in mind when it comes to open source, because I think... Even if you look at it from a corporate open source perspective, like these large companies like Microsoft or VMware, there is a propensity to staff projects with developers. And so the work that gets done by developers is development. Yeah. But that's not what makes a product. And Kubernetes is a product. And I think any large, successful open source project, even if it's a third of the scale of Kubernetes, is a product and you need to treat it like a product. So if you aren't going to staff people who do things like writing, who do things like community management, who do things like program or product management, you are going to have some massive deficits in your open source product and it's not gonna be as as successful as it could be.
0: Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I think um, some folks who do work on upstream Kubernetes as part of their jobs they aren't even full-time dedicated to that, right? That might just be like a slice of what they do in the week.
1: Yeah. And I think that's maybe, at least from my perspective, after a couple of years in the CNCF, which is a very different perspective than many people in the community, is, again, what gets staffed determines what gets done. And it's, I think that's a mentality shift that needs to start happening in open source communities where... It's far more relevant now than it was 10 years ago. It's far more critical now than it is 10 years ago. And I think the age of unevenly staffing projects or I have a bit of time off the side of my desk to work on (laughs) Kubernetes and then my real job is something else because my company doesn't understand. (laughs) I think that age is rapidly going to come to a close because I think it has to come to a close. So my little
0: two Yeah. (laughs) No, it's a really interesting point. And when you think of especially companies like the cloud providers who are providing managed mm-hmm. Kubernetes offerings, it's definitely in their best interest, right, for the users to have good documentation to fall back on.
1: Well, yeah, when their when they're SREs running their clouds have a problem, who's going to solve it for them? <laughs>
0: <laughs> True, that as well. Um So like I said, I I really enjoyed that talk. And in that talk, you used the hero's journey as a metaphor for users and and how they kind of encounter documentation. Mm -hmm. And it's a concept that I'm familiar with. I, I was a theater major and I've learned about Joseph Campbell and all of those things at some point. But for those who maybe aren't familiar with the hero's journey, like one example that a lot of people will probably connect with is Luke Skywalker. Because George Lucas, in when he was constructing that for Star Wars, Philip specifically was using the hero's journey. And it really, mm-hmm. his character really maps well to that. Mm-hmm. The idea that you've got this person who's just starting out and then they gain experience. And in the end, they're able to overcome the big challenge in front of them.
1: I, the large part of my trade is communicating information. And yeah, I, I think that talks are a slightly different format of communication than documentation is. Sure. I could very easily point you to the contents of that talk in like a blog post or in like a technical writing one-on-one course. But I think when you're giving a talk, you have to give people a story to latch onto that has a clear beginning and end. So I'll be perfectly honest. I sort of felt like I shoe-hammered like the the metaphor a little bit, like oh. for the times. But I was determined to give it a kind of narrative structure because I think that's what talks are. Compared yeah. to documentation, which is reference material.
0: I, I didn't feel that way watching it. Oh, like you were you. <laughs> hammering me over the head or anything. Okay. Uh, but, but you mentioned this idea of the user coming to the documentation with a goal of some.
1: So I, And one of the questions that came up in your tweet thread was like, how do developers get better at writing documentation? And I think the thing that I see the most often with developers when I talk to them. So like the... It's a little different in open source, but the typical way a technical writer works with developers is you make a thing, I sit you down in a room and I say, explain the thing to me. And we go from there. Yeah. And the thing that I, I find most in those conversations with developers is they start at like the implementation of it. They're like, okay, let me tell you about this base 32 encryption. And I'm like, I don't <laughs> think your user really cares. Like, I don't really think they care about the encoding of the database, unless it's, like, actually important because they might screw it up. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the piece of advice I usually give people the most is, like, you need to think about it from their perspective. And most of you are developers, so you already know how you use the documentation because you do. Which is, you're trying to do something because somebody's given you a ticket um and if you're let's say you're a junior to intermediate maybe even a senior developer somebody's giving you a ticket you're trying to do something very specific as described by the ticket you have a bit of the thing memorized but at some point you hit a thing where you're like oh man i have no idea how to do this i had no idea so you go to google um you google how do i do blank in go or java or javascript or whatever right, you're working right. in right Uh, So you already come in with a goal in mind, and what you hit off of that Google search may not be the exact answer, so you got to do some digging, right? Um, So that's one example of a goal is I have a specific thing that I'm trying to accomplish. Another example of a common goal is you are a senior plus engineer, so senior staff principal. You're an architect. Somebody's asking you your opinions. We are doing insert blue sky thing here brand new shiny object here what should be used to do it and it's your job then to look at all the options for your thing for your logger for your container runtime whatever read the documentation to understand its features and evaluate it against your needs and i think as soon as you start thinking about document those are the two big ones in my opinion Once you start thinking about documentation in those terms, it becomes very easy to understand what you need to write. How do I help the person do a specific thing? And really then it becomes a matter of tuning what is the specific thing? Am I being too specific or am I not being specific enough? What information does the person need to know to do the specific thing? For example, if they're doing a containers thing or if they're doing a Kubernetes thing, they need to know what a container is probably, They probably need to know what a pod is. They need to understand this concept of orchestrating pods and why you might want to do that. So you're going to need to write that down at some point so that they have the requisite background information. And then they can do the thing. Then you explain how to do the thing for them. Um, And again, like some of the documentation overlaps to that second major use case of, I need to understand if this thing can do what I need it to do. And you do that by explaining, here's all the things that it can do. (laughs) And you, it's it's a mentality shift, but I think that we actually, sorry, I'm rambling, but Serve our junior developers in some ways because they are in that funnel of somebody gives me a ticket, I implement the ticket, I get the next ticket. They aren't necessarily encouraged to think about why or how that functionality fits into the overall product how that affects the user, how their decisions and implementation affect how a user can use something. And so again, you talk to them and I've talked to developers who have no idea how their things are being used. And that's where you should hire UX coordinators.
0: That's <laughs> That's super interesting. And I feel like These topics overlap a lot, like you mentioned your background in UX, that UX, product management, all of these things apply here. In the talk that you mentioned, and I think we covered this, but you mentioned concept docs, which sound more like the docs for that person who's doing the evaluation or doing the POC. Mm -hmm. What do you think makes a good concept doc?
1: It depends.
0: All right. right. Um, I like that The thing answer. with
1: concept ops is they, everybody needs to review them at some point. It just depends what your style is. There was a really interesting academic study that I read once that studied how developers consume API documentation. And they showed it was actually about 50-50. 50% of developers were looking for the specific fields they had to send to an API. They were looking for code samples. They just wanted to copy-paste something. And if they didn't understand it based on the code samples, then they would go and read the conceptual documentation. The other 50% started with the conceptual documentation. They read all of the conceptual documentation, and then they decided what they needed to do. And then they looked at the code sample. So I forget what your question was. (laughs) Uh,
0: My question was what makes a good concept doc?
1: Okay, there we go. (laughs) Sorry, this is the ADHD kicking in. We're at the end of the day and which means we're at the end of my pill. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What makes a good concept doc? It Again, it depends on what the piece of software is. Really, one of my favorite examples out there in the wild is actually Honeycomb's documentation for concept docs. Because Honeycomb had to introduce not only the product and how to use it, but the paradigm of observability. They were introducing a new concept completely. So they had to explain what that concept was, explain the important sub-concepts that somebody needed to know, and then they had to compare and contrast it to technologies that people already knew so that they could understand the connection and understand why it was important to use an observability tool. So. I think it really depends on whether you're introducing an entirely new concept to your people or not, or whether you're leveraging concepts that exist elsewhere. The other example of concept docs that I've written, I've done a lot of work in e-commerce in the past. And while those terms may be new to the developer, like for example, PCI compliance, it is broadly speaking a concept that exists out in the world outside of software development, so it's about briefly introducing it to them and then saying, if you want to know more, click on this link and then diving them into something more technical that they're more interested in. Aside from that, it's blank is a blank that does blank. That's all you need to know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you you brought up a really good example in your talk. You mentioned the Vitesse docs that like literally started out with that very oh, yeah. sentence.
1: That's it. That's 90% of it. If you can boil down your concept to blank is a blank that blanks, Everything else is just icing on the cake at that point. <laughs> and if you can't boil it down to that, there's, there's other issues at play for you that you might need to work through with your product.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what about the, the reference docs? Are there any specific challenges with those, like API documentation, things like that? I know a lot of folks nowadays are just generating those automatically. They're not yeah. necessarily writing them.
1: The real... I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of issues if you really want to get into it. Um, I kind of love working on reference documentation because I have a UX background. And I think mm-hmm. the thing that's interesting about reference documentation is they are, they're working manuals. They're designed to be the thing that you would keep on your desk and reference over and over again as right. you're working on something. They're not meant to be something that you read once and put away. Um, so the key there is keeping them informative enough for a newbie but also keeping them like succinct enough for the person who has to look at this a hundred times a day Um, and i think in terms of like actually presenting that documentation there are usability heuristics there as well which are really interesting um like i don't Think I have ever worked on an API where anybody has ever solved the API reference documentation usability problem? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I'll just let the cat out of the bag. Uh, so I'm going to Stripe uh, in a few weeks. The mm-hmm. uh, staff technical writer, along with a bunch of other really talented writers, and I which, think from st-
0: from my perspective, they are known for. They being they, very are. Good they are they are known things. for
1: having fantastic API documentation. Um, they've come the closest that I know of. It's them in, for a period of time, Twilio, but I haven't checked in on Twilio's docs in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because in my interview loop, they brought up the docs. They were like, what do you think is going well? What do you think is going poorly? And one of the things I brought up is in the years intervening since Stripe went through a big docs redesign and did a really fantastic job like five or six years ago, um, they've introduced a lot of nested data structures into their API, which is very common for any kind of payments or e-commerce company. And that was one of the things I brought up is like, this worked really well when your API didn't have these nested JSON data structures. And now that it does, things get a little weird in terms of the UX of <laughs> of scrolling through um, page. It's also just a bigger API now. And, you know, that sort of infinite scroll style of page, um, hits a limit of usability at some point. Another example is for example, uh, like help menus in command line tools, um, mm-hmm. uh, cause that's reference documentation and there's a usability thing there too. Of uh, That is often maintained in the source code for the CLI tool. Um, and developers don't think about naming things in particularly friendly ways sometimes, um, The order that things are supposed to be put in, like the order of flags and commands, um, Git recently changed theirs, actually, like in a recent version. Uh, And I had to like relearn how to push things to a fork (laughs) because they like changed the order that they wanted one of the two words in and nobody thought about it as like a UX problem. Wow.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it is. it's it's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of those kind of command line help things as being reference docs, but it totally makes sense. Um, I've also seen situations where the stuff that's in there, you know, that you get from the actual CLI doesn't match up with what's in the documentation that's yeah. on the website or whatever.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that's, that's where you sort of start to see the cracks in an organization form, right? It's, it's usually an issue of siloing uh, where like the people either know that writers exist, they don't know how to talk to writers, they forget, uh, whatever. Um, And that's usually like where product management can be a really helpful friend, which is like, if you can manage to get product management or an open source project to sort of say to finish off your coding task, you must make sure the documentation situation is taken care of. Either somebody else is writing it or you're, you're writing it or you're reviewing it, then you're usually in a better situation.
0: That totally makes sense. Um, so you have been involved with the Kubernetes docs specifically, I think, like, were you on, uh, a SIG or a working group or.
1: Um, I am on SIG docs. Um, I am also on the Kubernetes code of conduct committee. Um, I started and ended the naming working group for Kubernetes uh over the course of a year with Stephen Augustus. Um and in my role at CNCF, um I was kind of I I looked at all the docs. Not all the docs, but a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, for a lot of different projects. So
0: So with the Kubernetes docs specifically, mm-hmm. um I wonder like what what you saw in your time, like working on those in those couple of years, like what, what's it been like the, because there's been a lot of growth, there's been mm-hmm. new features getting added. Um, mm-hmm. How, how are the the docs do you think? Ooh, that's a question.
1: <laughs> and I say that with like the utmost amount of love. Um, let me answer in the more general sense of like, and I'm hoping to give a talk at this at the next KubeCon, so hopefully it gets accepted. But like there's the interesting thing about working at the CNCF is you actually get to see projects in different stages of maturity and you get to see the commonalities between the different stages of maturity. So Kubernetes is a very mature project at this point. Um, And from a documentation set, it is pretty much at all times feature complete for all intents and purposes. Um, And so it has. Mature documentation set problems. Um, at some point, some interesting uh, decisions were made with the information architecture uh, or how how the documentation is organized. Yeah. And um, typically in a product company, um, every few years, you kind of tear things down and you put them back together again. Um, documentation is a garden which must be weeded. <laughs> it's not it's not a statue that's built. It's just it's a it's a process of weeding at all times. We, uh, we
0: did some weeding recently where I work. I totally know what you're talking about.
1: I mean, we're doing some re- weeding right now uh with Removing Docker Shim. Um and that's something that I think the current documentation set really struggles with is there this doing large scale work when you're in a private company working on a product is not it's disruptive but it's possible. Doing that kind of large scale work in an open source project would be the, you know, functional equivalent of like re-architecting a large part of Kubernetes. Like highly disruptive, highly divisive, divisive to the point where it can't get done. And that's where the documentation is right now, where some interesting information architecture choices were made a few years back and they have continued. And normally you would say, hey, we gotta reorganize this. but it's hard to do, given no, the nature of that. About the that
0: totally makes sense, right? Because normally, if you were doing that in a product company, like you said, you know, there would be business stakeholders that you would want to get on board with the fact that we're going to make this effort and it's yeah. going to take so much time, and 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 there's not really that kind of stakeholder necessarily for Kubernetes.
1: Yeah, there is, and there's. It's a matter of not having those stakeholders and also having too many stakeholders and I say this um with the caveat of like I'm not in sig dogs leadership right now um and I they've recently um elected new leads uh who are awesome um and I'm not trying to criticize anybody's work here I'm just pointing out a problem that I see from my perspective um so With Kubernetes, the thing with documentation is it's a great, easy access point for people. Everybody can contribute to the docs compared to, say, contributing to multi-tenancy features. (laughs) You kind of need to know something about multi-tenancy, but also a lot about Kubernetes before you can really contribute to those features. Um, So when documentation, if we were to propose a major documentation change, on the one hand, Every SIG has a stake. And on the other hand, no SIGs have a stake. And on the one hand, everybody can comment. And on the other hand, nobody really has the expertise to comment. So it's the kind of thing because everybody can have an opinion on documentation, Um I don't know that it's possible to drive consensus.
0: <laughs> that's super, super interesting. So so one thing I've talked about, I think, in some previous episodes that has always been interesting to me. So I, in my background, you know, I was in ops and SRE for many years. And there was a short period of time where I thought I wanted to be a product manager. And I was learning about that. and And one of the things that's been kind of fascinating to me about Kubernetes is that there doesn't seem to be that product manager role Mm -hmm. in the way things are structured, right? You've got like these SIGs that seem pretty self-sufficient, you know, in terms of like the area that they own, but there's, you know, not like the product manager at the high level, Mm -hmm. like I guess the technical oversight committee maybe fulfills some of that, but it's, you know, I don't know. I don't know the structure as well as you do probably. Um,
1: My understanding is that the technical oversight committees Their main role is to shepherd multiple projects into the CNCF um, and in doing so define the overall technical direction of the CNCF. Their secondary role is to make sure that projects are maturing through to graduation. Right, Um, right. And again, that also sets the technical direction of the CNCF. Yeah. Um, But they don't necessarily decide for the project. To my understanding, and I'm not in those meetings, so I don't know, um, they do not actually decide um what product features should be implemented
0: yeah no i think you're right about that it's been something that interests me because like you know with some of the things that have come up in the past like the issues around the first docker shim announcement right and all the confusion that happened with that you know and a lot of that was a uh, uh, from what I understand anyway, as someone on the outside Mm was a lack of communication between people inside the Kubernetes community, right? About like what the best way to do this was. And, and those are the kinds of things that I would expect a product manager potentially to help with. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's interesting to me. Yeah,
1: there is, um, there is a deprecation process and the deprecation process was followed for Dr. Shim. And I just want to make that perfectly clear. Cause I think there yeah. is, um, I wouldn't want to assign blame where it doesn't do. So the people who are actually responsible for doing the deprecation were in fact doing everything that they, they could, um, yeah. the, and I really do need to caveat here. I am speaking as an individual and an individual contributor to Kubernetes, not yeah. as a spokesperson of CNCF in this regards. Yeah. Um, please do not take any of these com- these comments as statements from the CNCF. And if you do... Um, I'm so sorry to the CNCF PR staff. People are (laughs) loving it. I love you so much. And they know that. So so I'm sorry if this lands on your plate.
0: (laughs) Like like Um, you said, I think that by the time this airs, you won't even be working for the CNCF anymore. I know, but still I wouldn't want to cause anybody problems. Yep, absolutely. Um,
1: I think, at least from my perspective, and I sort of was brought into it when it was already happening, I think a lot of what people picked up on is it had that word Docker in it. Um, and I think that's why it became as big as it did. The Absolutely. Kubernetes project has done deprecations before. It has a deprecation cycle. Um, are we hoping to make the deprecation um, process a little more robust as a result? Yes. Um, <laughs> and the thing that I specifically have suggested is when you deprecate things, you need to A, consider the documentation impact and B, write a few blog posts during the releases leading up to the actual removal uh, because people just need to keep being reminded. Yeah. Um,
0: but no. We actually, <laughs> one of our listener questions was from Ray. Is it Lejano?
1: Lejano, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, who was uh, reminding people that Docker Shim is going away in 1.24. Docker
1: Shim is going away in 1.24. There is already, um, at the time of recording, there is already one blog post up on this. Which is essentially saying Docker Shim is going away in 1.24. Uh, another blog post will go out shortly at some point during the month of February, uh, which will be documenting specifically what you need to do to ensure that a 123 cluster is compatible with 124 after Docker <laughs> Shim. Um, and there will be, I think, one more blog post uh, following that up in March, April. Um, again, we're trying to keep it on people's radars this time. Yeah. <laughs> so, Absolutely. But yeah, I, it's not the only deprecation that's going out of that release. Actually,
0: yeah, there've been actually quite a few APIs and things. Yeah, like, uh, again, <laughs> it's the last
1: not. It is not the um, it's not the only deprecation the project's done, um, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is in open source, the work that gets done is the work that that has people behind it, um, and I think that's maybe important for Kubernetes end users to understand is. If we are deprecating features that maybe you would like not to be deprecated, we need people to help maintain those. Otherwise we have to, because we can't keep maintaining a forever growing code base.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, what about, you know, back to the Kubernetes docs, uh, what about, Um, are there things that you've seen like um, from a positive aspect in your time Ooh. there have been improving or?
1: I am really, really excited with how SigDocs has matured over the last year and a half. So, um, Mm -hmm. prior to its current sort of set of community leaders, um, SigDocs was run by Zach Corleisen, uh, who used to work at the CNCF. Um, and a part of the reason Zach was actually brought in was to help stabilize documentation in Kubernetes. Uh, and when Zach left his position last year, um, I think they were um, quite concerned. Um, I was asked not to step into the role as SigDocsly, very specifically, because there was a feeling that, and I haven't told anybody this, so this truly is the hot news. Um, news <laughs> there, And I completely agree with this assessment, which is if I had stepped into SigDocs leadership at that time it would have forever relied on CNCF to keep it staffed and to keep it going. Um, and at some point oh. the community had to take it and run with it. And it got rough for a little while there, but I think we're getting there, which is really exciting to see.
0: That's so that's fantastic. the most
1: positive thing it's the community.
0: That totally makes sense. I can, I can 100% see why, um, why folks would feel that way, yeah. So you mentioned um, the inclusive naming stuff which is something that I've been very excited about for the folks who aren't familiar. This is, you know, trying to remove, you know, words from the way things are named and documentation and things that, mm-hmm. that might be, you know, charged, highly charged for people or offensive, however you want to put it. Um, I think that it's, it's a really, uh, a really important thing to do in terms of inclusivity, you know, because as uh straight white guy, the things that offend me are potentially going to be different, you know, than, than the, the things that offend people with a different kind of life experience. But these are efforts that I see sometimes like mocked Mm -hmm. by people and, and I don't necessarily want to get into the, those folks, but like, I think there are people who just really might not understand, you know, Mm -hmm. why this is important. And I'm wondering what what you would say to someone like that who thinks that effort, that time involved, could be spent better on something else.
1: Uh yes, the why are we wasting our senior engineer's time renaming Master Bridge to Maine? Yeah, um, exactly. I that that sounded a little derisive. Um, because I think it is a very legitimate concern. Um you know, to that person specifically, what I like to say is. History gets written a certain way. I don't know how else to put it. And in most cases, history tends to look well on people who champion diversity and inclusivity and make an effort to um to defend people who have less um privilege than they do. That is a pretty consistent thing in history. Like even if um like authoritarianism or racism or xenophobia um when temporarily, it always seems to be temporarily. And there is a long trodden path in history of this kind of thing. So if you don't think it's worth your time, ask yourself how somebody... Somebody's going to read your little GitHub comment saying, I don't think we should do this. Ask how that's going to look in 10 years. Um, that's because a really for, good point. Well, I mean, so another example is, you know, when I and probably you, when we were growing up, using gay as a slur for something, saying like, oh, that's gay, was super common.
0: Super Yeah, common. absolutely.
1: Everybody I know said those things. Um, and ask yourself how that looks today. Yeah, (laughs) even if you're not a gay person, like ask yourself, like, does that reflect well? Like, would I want somebody digging through things that I have said in the past and like dragging those up for me? Uh, Because, you know, we grew up not necessarily with the Internet recording everything that we were saying. That is not the case anymore. And again, if you're going to leave that GitHub comment. And this is going to be the GitHub ID you attach to all of your work for the next 20 or 30 years. Like, is it really going to go well for you?
0: <laughs> that's, no, that's a really, really good point. <laughs> like,
1: I think it's especially,
0: not. Yeah, I think especially like on the, the master thing. One thing that I'll remind people of sometimes is the fact that there are undoubtedly people in this community that, have ancestors who were slaves Mm -hmm. right and like how master sounds to you or me may be pretty different to how it sounds to a person in that situation and it may keep them from participating in the community you never know
1: yeah i mean so stephen started um the inclusive naming initiative for me and priyanka and like a lot of the impetus from that actually came from so I made comments uh in June of 2020 during the George Floyd riots. Uh, and Stephen immediately messaged me and sent me threads that he had started 2 years ago uh during Charlottesville stuff and then threads that he had found from like a year or two before that. And you know it's very tiring for black people and and people of color and minorities of gender or race or whatever to constantly be the person who has to start their own email threads (laughs) and have to do it year after year after year um like it doesn't seem like that big a theme thing it does seem like just words and i get it but can you imagine having to do that can you imagine having to do that every single time you went to the bathroom like there's no sign for me where do you want me to go Um like I'm so I'm half Filipino and I'm half uh British. And Vancouver is a city that is I would say is honestly 50%, if not more, um, people of East Asian descent. Mm -hmm. And very often when I was a kid in classes, they would do they would do the thing where it's like, okay, divide yourselves up. And like because this was like the the early nineties, somebody was like, Divide yourselves up by race. And so like (sighs) invariably people like not white <laughs> and I I just remember it was like a it was a summer camp or something so the people running were like 16 and they just didn't think and it was the 90s so like yeah. I'm not that upset but I just remember me and my sister standing in the middle of the room in the summer camp just like looking at each other laughing because we we're like what do you want to do with them <laughs> like we don't even read particularly white like we got the black hair but I also definitely do not read Asian <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And it gets you know that was I was six at that point or something like that by the time I got to 16 I was over it. It was really frustrating because I had to do it month after month after month year after year after year. And it seems like a small thing, but over time it's exhausting. So do you want to do that to people?
0: No, it's a it's a great point and I think that to me one of the reasons why I like this community so much is because they're there really are a lot of people who care about these things who care about making it a welcoming and inclusive kind of community and you know as anyone who looks at uh diversity and inclusion stuff should understand is um the the i part in the d n i is super important, right? like you can't just bring people in, you know you need to make make them feel welcome and let them know that we want them to be part of the community
1: i Yeah, I, for me working in open source and working in in, uh, cloud native specifically, one of the coolest parts was like how many diverse people you meet here compared to everywhere else in software. Like it was so awesome. Um, And I always knew that I got along with like the DevOps folks. Like I always just ended up making friends with them in every company that I was in. Uh, And then when I sort of came to cloud native, I understood why. (laughs) Like I understood why everybody was like this. And it's kind of a part of why I am very passionate about the code of conduct stuff is because I don't, again, it's it's those small things, right? But if you allow those small things to slide, all of a sudden it's a space where people can't, like, be,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this is kind of a big, big topic change. <laughs> okay. That was that was awesome. I, I don't have a That's good That's awesome, but like let's coming let's out of that <laughs> conversation. <laughs> but um but back to the docs. Um mm-hmm. so I think there's a, a big tendency in open source to not value non-code contributions as highly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I see a lot of people in the Kubernetes community working to counter that, you know, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of people talking about how important it is to, to just even, you know, fix that typo in a readme or, or whatever. And I wonder um, what you would tell someone to encourage them, maybe that that that's a place they should spend some time, especially a new contributor.
1: From my perspective, particularly for documentation, um, the one of the best ways to learn a product would be working on documentation. Um, I have had developers that I've worked with say that I know a feature better than them sometimes. And like when somebody else in the company asks a question, I'll be the one to answer because I went digging for that answer at some point when I was writing the thing. Um yeah. One of my favorite people in the community is uh, Tim Bannister. Uh, he is a tech lead for SigDocs. Um, one of the top contributors in Kubernetes, actually, consistently. Um, yeah. And just an all-around great guy. Um, Tim got into Sig Docs and got into editing the docs when he was st- studying for his CKA. He started revising topics and editing topics as a way of helping himself memorize them for the exam. Um, and if if there was content that he wanted as reference for himself, he opened PRs and got the Uh So wow. he contributed to the docs for things that he wanted to reference because you're allowed to have the documentation site open during the CKA. That's <laughs> super
0: interesting.
1: It's super, super intelligent. He told us this one day. Um, I think it was like the last call before, before the winter break. And we were like, Tim, you clever son of a gun. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is something that I encourage anybody to do. If you're a new contributor, um, like if you want to get involved in SIG multi-tenancy, revise the documentation. It always needs revision. It always needs additions. (laughs) If you're, you know, trying to understand how that feature works and you're like, wow, how does this one specific thing work? and there's no documentation on it. So you go digging, you start looking through the methods, uh, you start looking for blog posts, you start asking questions. The best way to crystallize your knowledge is by adding to the documentation. It's just like taking notes in class and revising those notes for the test. Um, That's
0: super cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think the majority of my open source contributions have probably been things like fixing something in a readme. Or I, I always especially look at those quick starts, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I think that that stuff is so critical that like if people run into, you know, they're doing the quick start and uh, one of the commands, they run it and it throws an error message, you know, they they might just be gone, right? They might yeah. invest the time to figure it out, um, but but maybe not. And so by By fixing something like that, you're potentially helping so many people, especially with a project as big as Kubernetes.
1: Yeah, Um, and I think this is where Kubernetes is an interesting documentation use case in some ways. Um, Because somebody, it's very possible that somebody won't come in looking to do something specific or looking to evaluate Kubernetes. It may be that somebody has already decided we're using Kubernetes, or I'm joining a team that already uses Kubernetes. And now I need to learn it from the ground up. And it's, I think something I didn't understand about Kubernetes until I really got into it is it's it's—it's kind of like a set of command line tools and that's one aspect of it, but it's also a development paradigm. And in being a development paradigm from a documentation perspective, it also needs to be more like, Goes documentation or rust's documentation then it does need to be like any other open source project or any any other product um and where like a languages documentation or for example spring frameworks documentation um are slightly different in that regards is they have to teach people the levers they're allowed to pull for lack of a better word um uh, so yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. Um, the quick start, quick starts are super important. Um, the next important thing is how do you step somebody from the quick start into the knowledge dump phase where you're like, and now I everything, and that's really hard. It's really, yeah, hard.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, like I mentioned, we've got a whole bunch of these listener questions, and uh right. I'm definitely not going to be able to get to them all. I want to thank everyone who sent things in. Um, as you mentioned, a few of them were folks who know you and were trolling you about various things, but but most of them were very, very solid questions. Um uh our friend Chris Nova, who was actually on the last episode of the podcast, uh, had a number of questions. Um but the, the first one was, what is the biggest problem that technical writers face today?
1: Um. um I think that uh, a combination of being one of the lower paid professions in product and in open source, um, uh, as well as being seen as, quote unquote, non-technical, uh, as well as people having a perception that anybody can write. I went to English <laughs> for 12 years. Um I think the huge, the biggest problem is gathering enough respect to get enough face time with people to do the job well.
0: Wow. I, I can totally see that. Um, I definitely know that it's a, a role that's, that's undervalued in, in some places. And I'm one of those people who has the opposite view, right? I've worked with some amazing technical writers and, and I know what a difference they can make.
1: And, you know, the funny thing is, as I think that's a lot of it too, is there are a lot of people who haven't worked with technical writers, Uh, like somebody else has done the writing because I get that feedback a lot. Like after six months of working with me, I will invariably have a developer, often quite senior, go to me and say like, wow, like I had no idea it could be like this. (laughs) And it's a little upsetting, but I think that's, I think it's a huge issue.
0: Yeah. Um. So we got a question from Brandon, uh, who is awesome. Uh, BDM chef, Mm uh, what are your favorite few examples of great technical writing docs, um, and items for a charcuterie board? So let's maybe start with the technical writing.
1: (laughs) Um, I still think Stripe's documentation, both their API and non-API documentation is fantastic. Um, I. Again, I also mentioned Honeycomb. I think Honeycomb did yeah. just a fantastic job storytelling around that observability piece. Uh, so shout out to those guys. They're doing fantastic. Those people. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, and in terms of charcuterie boards, I think it's less about specific meats or cheeses and more about composition. So you need a variety of textures and a variety of like, like salty savories. So like you got to have some salty stuff. You got to have some cured meats. You got to have some cheeses. Uh, But you need to vary the textures. So salami is kind of a hard texture. Prosciutto is a little softer. Cheddar is a little harder. Brie, nice and soft. Um, Both of those are in the salty category. Uh, But you've got like salty, salty and then salty, creamy. Okay, so moving on. You need some crunchy. That's the next thing. You've got to vary your textures. So crunchy nuts are a good one. Crackers are a good one. The next thing you need is sweet. Uh, So dried fruits um jams spreads um that kind of thing the charcuterie board is about a variety of flavors and textures that's what makes it good
0: i think i'm taking the brandon brandon understood your passion for this topic yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm apparently well known as a charcuterie influencer um i've been off my game this year but we will return i promise you
0: all right (laughs) awesome um, you mentioned this this concept of um, technical writers maybe not being considered technical enough, which mm-hmm. I totally get. I know that happens. We had a question from uh, Basker Rao at Basker uh, MIB. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the level of technical knowledge one should gain if they want to find a role in technical writing?
1: Um, at a bare minimum, you need to know Git. You need to know enough HTML, CSS, and JavaScript to manage a static site generator. Um, very often you are also managing your own build pipeline. So you need to figure that out, whatever that is. Um, If for some reason you step into a role and they're using like Jenkins to build their docs, you either need to find a new job or you need to convince them that they need to move to Netlify because it's a lot easier. (laughs) I say this having used Jenkins to build documentation. It was not fun. I was always unhappy. Um, So that is your bare, bare minimum. On top of that, you probably want to pick up a programming language. um, And your first few jobs should be things that code in that programming language. So I knew Java, my first jobs were in Java based systems. Um, And after that, it doesn't really matter. Um, If you pick up JavaScript, honestly, you should stay within the JavaScript ecosystem for your first few gigs, and then you can expand outwards after a couple of years. You don't need to be a professional, but, like, if you choose JavaScript, finish free code camp. Um, I got up to second level, second year Java, and I think I had three or four courses in it. Um, You don't necessarily need to keep up with it, but, like, you need to be familiar enough that if somebody tells you launch this thing on the command line, you're not going to freak out. Yeah.
0: Cool. Cool. Yeah, we had a, a pretty much the same question, different wording from Justin Garrison um, at RothGar too. So thank you both for uh, for asking that. Um, we had a question from Christopher Becker at mm-hmm. Um If you were queen of the forest, what is one thing you would tell project maintainers to stop doing with their docs?
1: Um... To, there's very little that you need to stop telling people. Um, it's more what you need to get them to start doing. If there's one thing I would stop tell people to stop, it's stop using your code as documentation. Um, whether that is like and I've seen this a couple of times in CNCF projects, and I comment on it every time. Um, instead of having documentation, you copy and paste the interface or the class. And like, you just look at the comments for each method. Like I, I get it, but like it's, and it's not the worst documentation. It's actually pretty clear. You get a description and then you have like the actual signature for the function. It's fine, but like it's, it's bad usability and it's unprofessional looking. And I think for open source projects in specific, and I think this is something to internalize, professionality is super key for open source and super key for gaining maintainers. Uh, I once had a, had a boyfriend once, and uh, he was a pretty c- like senior systems implementer dude. Uh, and he once told me, like, I don't care how good the project is. If I see that its website is a GitHub readme, I will not use it because I can't throw that in front of my clients who are paying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So keep that in mind when you decide to dump your, like, interface implementation in as your documentation there is somebody who has very heavy purse strings who will not touch it because of the way you chose to do it. Write that's, it down in a paragraph.
0: <laughs> that's super interesting. Um, gosh, we got so many good questions. Um, there was one from Eric Sampson mm-hmm. um, at Event Driven. As a developer, um, well, so, so just to preface this, we both have ADHD, so this is a topic that's pretty <laughs> Dear to my heart, um, Eric asks as a developer how to get motivated to write documentation for your stuff, especially if you have uh, ADHD, LOL, sob.
1: Okay, so the motivation part and the ADHD part are separate. Um, one, do you want people to use your stuff? You need to write the documentation. If you don't want people to use your stuff, why are you spending your time doing this? It's it's just like, it's it's like mental flattery it's self-flattery if you don't want people to use the things you write. So if you want people to use the things you write, you have to explain it yourself. Um, that's your motivation. Dot. <laughs> um, as for the ADHD part, writing with ADHD is really hard. I've chosen the worst profession. Um, it, is, it is my daily, daily struggle. Um, two things. One, the biggest struggle you're going to have as a developer trying to write is that code is node-based systems with like multiple connection points. Um, So like think about a function that calls another function that refers to a database, right? You're thinking in nodes and webs and writing is linear. You have to go top to bottom. So how do you translate the web to a line? That's your main issue here. Um, So the first thing you have to figure out is what is my starting point? and then the next thing you have to figure out is how do I logically explain everything that this node-based system can do the easiest way to think about this is think about what is the biggest most overarching thing you have to explain and write that first and then keep going down the scales (laughs) like (laughs) um, we call this like scoping information like you have to scope somebody in basically so again for kubernetes kubernetes is a container orchestration Tool, okay, cool. What? Well, a container is dot 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 dot. When we say orchestration, we mean dot 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 Containers consist of dot 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 To orchestrate them, we have these pods and dot 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 And you just kind of keep moving your way down. Um, once you've explained all the things you need to explain, then you just need to list off. Here are all the different things you can do. Here's how you. The best way to start with that is crud, create, read, update, delete. Um, If there's anything weird that happens after crud, explain those things too. And then the final step is, okay, what are all the options for a thing? So if it's a command line tool, what is every single flag? List them out, what they do and what they expect. If it's an API, what are all the endpoints? List them out, list out the arguments they expect, list out the expected results. And that's, that's the body you've done it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. I also do a lot of writing in my job as a developer advocate, and it can be really hard with ADHD. Um, One, one hint I'd throw out there is that I think that most of the advice that you see about productivity is not aimed at us. (laughs) It's named at neurotypical people. And so there are certain things like Um, start with the hardest thing that you have to do and get that done. And it's just, yeah, it's terrible advice for someone with ADHD.
1: So when it comes to writing, when I'm really struggling to get started, um, I have two tools that I like to use. And frankly, I often use both if I'm struggling. One is it doesn't matter if it's good, just get it out. Like, I don't, you just have to get the first sentence out, even if it sounds like utter gobbledygook garbage. You have to get it out. Cause at some point your stupid little brain will loop back around and be like, oh that's bad. I'm gonna fix it. <laughs> once you're like once you've gotten going. Uh the second the second is if I cannot figure out for the life of me how to form a sentence, which happens like way more often than you'd expect. Um bullet points. I just write like this is the bullet points that I need to cover. Here are the high level topics. And usually halfway through the bullet point list I realize I'm just writing cool sentences and I just backspace the bullet points. <laughs> um yeah and then you know sit on it for a bit until you hate it and then come back to it make it make yourself not hate it
0: yeah there's a a, uh it's pretty common for folks with adhd to be perfectionists and i think that's one of the things that could be a problem is you know if you feel like that first draft has to be perfect you know
1: it's always terrible your writing is always
0: Wait, you're, do you mean my writing specifically?
1: No, just in general, <laughs> my my writing too. Like, so I I wrote a blog post recently that was like my one of my twenty twenty one things. I wanted to get back into blogging, yeah. um, and it's fine. But I just I'm like, this is terrible. I write full time. How is it so boring and lame and terrible? Um, so like, I do this like this is my job. I still don't like my writing. So you know.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Um, great. Another question from Siam Saftar, um, Mm -hmm. at cloud native boy. Uh, I was on one of his streams not too long ago. He's super nice. Um, he, uh, he asked about, um, the, I had to ask him about the wording here, but I think the, the gist of the question is, you know, if you're someone who's not a native English speaker, and you're having to write docs in English. Uh-uh. You know, are there any kind of resources or or tips or anything <sighs> you can think of in that situation? It's probably a hard one.
1: It's hard. Uh, yeah. like, and I worked in Germany where nobody's a native English speaker. And it's still really hard. Yeah. Um, my first piece of advice is just get it out in whatever words you know um honestly my second piece of advice specifically uh for people who are not English speakers is if you do not feel that your English is up to the task talk to your manager that's not fair that's not really a part of your job description and say like listen my English is not up to the task you need to hire somebody to do this Mm -hmm. um I and you may not be in that position but like aside from that I mean all I can really give you are like really tactical grammar rules, but I don't think that's actually going to be helpful for the fact that like you're writing in not your native language. Um, yeah. Don't let yourself be put in that position. Tell them, tell your manager that they can pay for an English tutor of that. If they insist on you <laughs> writing your documentation. Because um, you don't also, have the skills to do it. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Um, he had asked too about like, um, how do you schedule like you're writing how do you come up with a plan for how to do it especially if you're like m- maybe working on pretty short notice or pretty mm. tight timelines
1: first things first the documentation always has to be a part of the timeline um and if that because that almost sounds like what that's buried in the question and i've dealt with that situation many times before um
0: you know, where the stuff just gets thrown over the wall and yeah where it's like oh we're done we're done because we finished ships
1: yeah, we're done because we finished coding it. So like, eh, um, so the first, the first thing is to always make sure that the documentation is a part of the timeline. Badger and pester product <laughs> management, engineering leadership, like the CTO, like I've gone like to the VPs for stuff before. Cause I just,
0: yeah, no. yeah.
1: uh, cause you're not going to get anywhere until you have the basic respect of being a part of the actual completion. Um, so the second thing, how do you do it? Let's say on a short timeline, um, ask for help. Uh, Mm -hmm. if you're being put in a position by your development team where you have to write on a short timeline, um, what you have to do for that developer is the second, the second they check, no, like done on that ticket, you are on their doorstop, uh, with essentially a template document. Which is like conceptual. Explain what it is, and I, I have sent developers the blank is a blank that does blank before, like yeah. fill in the blanks for me, um, and then like okay, what are the steps to use your blank? List them out for me. Yeah. Um. Three. What are the caveats and gotchas and weird things? Are there weird encodings? Are there weird like? And just send them a questionnaire. Say like send this back asap. Um. It's not ideal, it's not a great way to develop relationships with people, which is a large part of the job, but like if you're being put in a bad position, you gotta do what you gotta do
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because you know even in my work in developer advocacy, there have been times where I've been working on something that hasn't been released yet, right, like a tutorial for a product that doesn't actually exist yet, it's still in flight, and sometimes. Things can't change, and um, you know, in my case, I'm a pretty visual person, and so I want to see a UI and click on it, right? To so, like, grok something, and that may not be done. Yeah. Um, what do you do in those kinds of situations where you're, you know, the thing is maybe still in flight, but you really need to get started to be able to finish in time?
1: Um, product management's probably your best friend at that point. And frankly, yeah. if they were asking you to start something that early, that's still like technically in flight. Um, they should have enough information that you can can fill out the conceptual parts rather than the actual step-by-step implementation. Um, And if they don't, um, I think you push back and say like, there isn't enough information for me to work. Or if they give you an explanation, they're like, oh, but 50% of this might change when we implement. Like you push back and say, that's a waste of my time. And you need to come back to me when you have enough information Uh, that we can be 75% sure that it's not going to dramatically change. Um, And even for stuff that is still being implemented, like, again, I feel like if product management has done their job correctly, like, you still have a rough idea of what these steps for your tutorial should be. Like, you can look through the tickets and say, like, okay, like, I think we're going to use a command line tool. We're going to do some SSHing. We got to write a config file. We don't know what the config is going to look like. yet, But like, we're going (laughs) to write a config file. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Yeah, this is roughly the shape of it. Uh, And then as things get finished, you fill in the blanks. At the end, you test it uh, and hope. (laughs) Yeah. But I I do not believe in allowing people to put you in crunch time as a writer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It definitely seems like product management is the, the, kind of, the kind of folks who should be uh, making sure that you have time to do your work. Yeah. Um, one more from Chris Nova. Um, there are a lot of non-technical writers out there writing docs. Mm-hmm. What are some small things that non-formally trained writers could do that would have a huge impact?
1: Mm. I mean, there's a role for, for everyone. Um, where you're gonna get the most bang for your buck with a technical writer is um making sure that the documentation is structured in a logical way, making sure that the documentation is complete and actually friendly from a user perspective um and again, making sure the actual use case is covered. Um, yeah. Please note that all of those things do not necessarily involve code. If you are not a technical writer who is writing uh, documentation the place where you can be most valuable and contribute most in terms of a team setting is writing sample code. (laughs) Because I could be, there are a lot of technical writers who were at one point software engineers um, and they're they're in technical writing for a reason. They didn't want to be software engineers, just like most software engineers don't want to be technical writers. Um, Writing good sample code though is the key. Uh, You see a lot of sample code where like in a class named foo, it has a method named bar. And that's useless. People, it's useless. Um, uh, for example, and I used to have to tell people this in e-commerce all the time. It's like, you can't, you know, call your new method for an e-commerce API car. What does that, that's not a feature that an e-commerce user is gonna add. What is a feature that they might add? Subscriptions, reoccurring subscription services. So I think helping, understanding your user and brainstorming realistic sample scenarios and then creating sample code around those scenarios, incredibly useful. Yeah. Um, and if you comment up your code well enough, a technical writer can fill in the gaps. And like together you can create something very, very beautiful. Um, Kat and I were going to give a talk on this and uh, it didn't get accepted.
0: Oh <laughs> No.
1: But maybe one day we'll figure it out.
0: <laughs> well, I do hope to see you give more talks. Um, I'm hopefully going to be at Valencia if uh, I'm able to travel. So we'll see. I don't know if you. Fingers
1: um, crossed here. Um, I mean, yeah. I submitted one talk. Um, and in case it doesn't, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say what the talk's about before it gets announced, am I?
0: Oh, I don't know. Honestly. Well, I submitted Probably. one talk.
1: Uh, I have another talk that I want to submit for a maintainer track. Um, And I have a couple of talks. Um, I'm thinking of submitting one talk to Write the Docs this year, and I'm thinking of submitting a few to Open Source Summit. So if I'm allowed to travel, we'll see.
0: (laughs) Very cool. Well, um, I think we'll wrap it up there. I want to thank everyone for all the great questions. There really are even more than I had time to get to. And um, it was so much fun to be able to to work those in. And um, I want to thank you, Celeste, for taking the time to come on and chat with me. I think this is the first time, like you and I have been on calls together before, like random Zoom calls and things, but I think this is the first time that we've uh, had like a one-on-one conversation with this, like this, and it was super fun. fun.
1: Yeah, so thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Cube Cuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burrows. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Mon Placer for our music. You can find more of his work at LoyaltyFreakMusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening.